Welcome to the Bridge Podcast. I'm your host, John Lamberton. Today, I'm speaking with Andy Schechter. Andy is somebody who has seriously impacted the coffee industry and the barista community in general. He was a prolific poster on forums like Alt Coffee and Home Barista or Coffeed, and this established him as a central node in a network of really smart, empirically-minded tinkerers of that era. Uh, Andy was one of the first people to really make headway on espresso machine temperature stability uh, by installing a PID on his home machine. And he also changed the way we think about espresso and how we talk about it. Uh, Andy's also the owner of a tofu company, which is uh, something I'm interested in, so we chatted a little bit about that as well. Uh, after some initial audio issues, we decided to just restart the interview for the sake of audio quality. And uh, it's also worth mentioning that we recorded this as Biden passed 270 electoral votes. So you might hear cars uh, you know, honking their horns in the background or general hooting and hollering from my fellow Angelinos. Anyway, uh, it was a pleasure speaking with Andy, and I hope that y'all enjoy our chat as much as I did. All right. This is, this is called a do-over? Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. All right, so I'm here with Andy Schechter, and uh, we are uh, hopefully now post-audio uh, problems. And so, uh, uh, Andy, I, I was just curious, uh, you know, I see... Uh, an EK43 behind you and a burst lab grinder. Um, and so I'm hoping to hear a little bit about uh, what type of coffee you're brewing. I know that you're uh, using George Howell all of the time. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this, but you know, just for the, the audience to hear, can you uh, go over some of this again? Sure. Um, um, I'm pretty much, I'm mostly, I'm probably 95% espresso. Okay. So in the morning, I make a few espressos um, for myself and my girlfriend, and and um, since I got my, I had I had actually met John Bick, who is the, the inventor of, of Versalab, of uh, the Versalab grinder. I actually um, met him at a coffee show. Um, I don't know, back in two thousand, back in the aughts, in the early two thousands, I guess, and. Um, and we had great conversations. I was fascinated by the guy and what he was doing. Um, and, um, and, and I, I kind of talked about him and he, and he kind of, and, and we had such nice conversations that when he started selling the Versalab grinders, he, um, he awarded me serial number one of the Versalab grinders. Nice. So, um, uh, but 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 the Verslab had some problems with maintaining the burr alignment, so it sat on my, it just sat around and I didn't use it for years and years. Okay, and um, and when I got the EK forty three, I was using that pretty much exclusively. But then finally Frank Dura in Germany encouraged me to send my Verslab grinder to him, and he. Um, uh, refurbished it, put in uh, two new bearings, changed the drive system. He sort of rebuilt the whole thing and put a fancy, um, some kind of high-tech chrome-looking finish on it. 
and um, and returned it to me. So I, I've had it back for several months, and that's what I used for espresso uh, pretty much exclusively. Okay, um, um, so when I make espresso in the morning, um, since I, since I have high cholesterol and I'm concerned about that, and since um, uh, espresso oils or coffee oils that are not filtered through paper supposedly can raise your cholesterol levels. I've been for years, I've been putting a moistened um, filter disc, it's actually an AeroPress filter disc on the bottom before I put the coffee into the, into the filter basket. And, um, and I think you lose a little bit of, of flavor from the coffee oils when you do that because the filter is, the paper filter is absorbing them. Um, you gain for, for, for undecided reasons, for reasons that are really unknown to me, although I have theories, people have theories, you actually increase the extraction yield um, in any particular shot. And the, and the difference is somewhere like 1%, 1.5%, something like that. That was kind of a really surprising thing to find out when I started doing that. Uh, subsequently, Scott Rayo said, if you put a filter disc on top of the coffee after you tamp it, um, your yield even goes up a little higher. Um, so, so I do both those. Uh, you know, I put I have a paper below and a paper above, um, and it's very time consuming. And um, and I once posted a video of my coffee technique, which hasn't changed that much. And some guy in a cafe somewhere just just said nobody nobody would ever nobody who knew what they were doing would ever do this because it's just a waste of time or something like that um and he's right i don't know what i'm doing so um but i do it anyway so um um so that's what i so that that's my grinder and i use vs i use the vst filter baskets of course and um um i was using uh, a friend of mine, Clinton, gave me this um, um, this coffee grooming tool. Okay, which you know you drop on top of the coffee in the filter basket and and you spin it and it perfectly levels the coffee and actually tamps it too if you set it properly, compresses it, um, and that gives you beautiful looking shots. It gives you that perfect that perfect whatever you call that kind of cone that curves down, um, it, it gives you perfect looking shots. But I found that, um, I found that my, my extraction yield decreased dramatically, like maybe 2% less using that grooming tool than, than not using the grooming tool. So if you want to, I decided if I wanted to take, uh, um, videos of my or or just still shots of my extraction through a bottomless portafilter and I wanted to impress people on how awesome my barista technique was then I would use the grooming tool but if I actually wanted to drink the shots or if I was serving serving shots to friends then it would be better not to use the grooming tool so that's pretty much retired because I don't do too many awesome shots of, of extraction mm -hmm. on the um, the espresso machine I'm using is a speedster, which is, you know, speedsters sitting over there. Um, and, um, 
and I love the Speedster. I had it, I've had it for a long time, and um, and I I just enjoy the look of it on the counter, and and I can do nice pre infusions with it, line pressure pre infusions, and um, and I, I've been tempted, and probably eventually I will get a decent espresso machine because um, um, because decent seems like a really good company more than decent they seem like a great company and scott uh scott rail you know he's very um he's posted a lot of stuff on on all the different things you can do with that decent machine and all the great extraction kind of experiments you could do um but i've been hesitant to do that because i just hate to because i'm afraid that i would then stop using the speedster entirely and I love using the speedster so much that it's kind of like I don't want to go there mm -hmm. <laughs> and screw things up. So, um, so, so I am using the speedster exclusively. Every once in a while, um, like in the middle of the day, I will make some um, some drip coffee with a Technivorm, okay? And um, and the Technivorm makes really, I think, makes really nice uh, drip coffee. But but mostly mostly I'm doing espresso. I actually quit doing cappuccinos um, a couple of years ago. The past couple of years, I've made probably four cappuccinos or something like that. Mostly when people come over, and um, and so I was, you know, I kind of got okay at doing latte art, and I think now I'm pretty terrible. <laughs> I'm terrible at doing latte art. So. Um, but every once in a while, every once in a long while, like a couple times a year, it's fun to, it's fun to get some milk and um, and try and and try to you know pour a, a Rosetta. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the coffee I use, I I really like George House coffees. I find they're um, light roasted, which I appreciate. I really like light roast, and I find they're just super clean. Okay. And when I taste a lot of other coffees, they might have some interesting flavors going on, but 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 oftentimes they kind of taste dirty to me. So I think I've been spoiled by the by by whatever, however, whoever's doing the prep, whatever uh, farms or 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 uh, washing stations, whatever that that George has found to prep his coffees, they seem to be doing a superb job. So so you know so I I. Probably I experiment with other things, but probably seventy-five percent of the coffee I drink is George Hell coffee. So um, um, that that's kind. Of, so that's I, I guess that sort of describes where I'm at, mm -hmm. espresso coffee-wise right now. I used to be, I've really backed off. You know, in the back five, ten, especially ten years ago. I was constantly experimenting and exploring things and testing things and doing experiments and writing them up online, all that kind of stuff. And I, John, I backed way off. I'm sort of like, I've sort of like receded into the shadows mm -hmm. and turned the coffee scene. So I, I really enjoy my, I enjoy my espresso making. And um, although it's frustrating sometimes because, because I'm just not the great barista that I would like to be, but <laughs> But um, but I, I I mess around with a refractometer and I try things, um, but I'm not like up on 
sometimes I go online and I read stuff that people are talking about, like like um, Barista Hustle, what they're talking about, or what Scott Rayo is talking about. And um, I'm not up on, I'm really not up on all the latest kind of stuff. I think I'm stuck in, I'm stuck at about 2014 or something like that. And, um, but you know, 2014 in a lot of ways was a better, was better times than we have now. So, so uh, yeah, I, I can't complain about that, right? 2020 hasn't exactly been the greatest. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I recall the the era when I first started playing with a refractometer, and that was during the days when, like, you know, there was such a like being a barista is being an artist, and like I don't use scales because of this and that, and uh, it's I mean it's changed a lot since then, but uh, I always was frustrated by that. Um, so I, I saw this video that you did of you know using the speedster and the ek, and uh, I think everybody's favorite part of the video is when you pull out this little clipboard, like this rollout clipboard and uh, you jot down all the data. And so I'm curious, uh, like that, that's just amazing, first of all, but uh, what uh, what is the, like, I mean, I guess you've said that you've eased up on the data collection, but uh, how many how many shots do you think you measure these days out of all the shots that you pull in terms of uh, TDS and all that? I moved, I moved from that house, okay? In that house, the machine was, the, the speedster was on the counter and there was a, a pull-out drawer, which was designed to be a cutting board, I guess. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even a drawer. It was just like a three-quarter inch slab of sort of like hard maple and it slid it slid into the counter and, and it just pulled out. So I guess it was designed for chopping. But um, when I started doing the coffee thing and you had a notebook there and it was always in the way and there's enough you have enough paraphernalia on the counter anyway. Mm -hmm. and I said, oh, wait a minute. I can use that. I can use that to keep my notes. And then I came up with, um, um, I, I sort of started recording data on this spreadsheet. And, um, and I'm on like version, I, I think I started with letters of the alphabet. And I started with A, B, C, D. Each time I revised that little spreadsheet, I think I'm up to like S or T or something like that. Okay, I kept on revising that thing. And so um, I, still, I, still, I still do that. I still keep all that data. Where is it? Oh, it's over here. So here's my, um, here's my espresso notebook. And, um, and it's still, I got pages and pages and pages. So I still do it. I, I pretty much every day, I might not record every shot, but I probably put down two out of three shots because I have a terrible memory. And and what I did yesterday, if I like the shots, um, I may not remember exactly what I did yesterday. So um, just this sheaf, sheaf of papers goes back four years that are in the notebook now. But I have a whole another old notebook that probably goes back you know years before that so um so i i am recording i am recording you know my my um my dose my shot you know ending volume um the um if i if i measure with the refractometer i record the tds and the and their extraction yield and i record the like pre-infusion seconds um 
I record seconds till first drop out of the out of the bottomless portafilter. I actually record when the when the stream coalesces to form a single stream out of the portafilter and the final time. And then I have a space for flavor notes. And um, so I, I re, I'm always writing stuff down in the morning as I'm doing that, but not nearly as thorough. And mm -hmm. the, the uh, experiments that I'm doing are not such formal experiments. <laughs> but yeah, I know the, the most comments on that video, aside from that guy who said, I, I was an idiot amateur and I didn't know, and nobody, <laughs> nobody of any standing in the barista community would ever use those techniques. Um, the, the thing that really people got turned on by that video was that little pullout drawer <laughs> because it was so slick. I don't, I don't have that pullout drawer anymore. You know, I really like this. I, I moved to a, a house with, and I really love this house, uh, this new house more than the old house. If I could bring one thing over from the old house, it'd be that little drawer. <laughs> um, I think I might have one of those little uh, weird, like semi-functional cutting boards. So I, I'm going to have to do some thinking about repurposing it. Yeah, uh, yes, go for it. Uh, so uh, we were also talking about, uh, you know, you beta testing with Vince Fidelli uh, on the refractometer and sort of like the, you know, moisture offsets and that type of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I remember when that app first came out, uh, it seemed like everybody was always on the wrong setting and uh, like it would just take some know-how to like make sure that you had the moisture set to zero and like you weren't on immersion when you're doing espresso or or whatever. Um, so I don't know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to hear about your experience with the refractometer. Um, so I'm curious also, uh, you know, you, you were starting to talk about alt coffee uh, or alt dot coffee. And uh, I was wondering if you could sort of paint a picture of what that community of sort of smart people who are interested in coffee was like back then. Alt coffee was really, really cool. Okay. And and what the picture was like uh, back then, like 20 years ago, I, I got on it like 20 years ago, okay, or a little, just over 20 years ago. And there certainly were people on there before that, um, uh, but I, I don't really know what, what, what went on. Um, Bald Coffee was like a, it was like a fantastic, it was like a think tank, okay? It was a fantastic little think tank. And, um, and we were struggling, okay? Everyone was struggling because, you know, I, I kind of said, I think, I think in just this conversation about how, you know, I don't know what I'm doing or I'm just trying to experimenting and trying to figure things out. Um, back then, we were in a deep, dark hole mm -hmm. wearing blindfolds. Um, I don't really think anybody knew what they were doing about, about, why espresso was coming out the way it was coming out, okay? Um, um, the, the, the theory of extraction yield or the theory of how the taste varied with extraction yields, um, the concepts of trying to get as even an extraction as possible out of your coffee bed, um, these were totally unknowns. There just was no knowledge. There were people, there were there were baristas out there like um, Paul Bassett from Australia or Bronwyn Cerna from Seattle that were pretty good baristas or maybe excellent baristas. And they might've had an intuitive feel for how to make espresso. But most of us had no clue. Um, Mark Prince 
told me once that he had judged like, I think he had judged the national barista championships, the U.S. barista championships. And he said the coffee tasted like shit, the espresso. <laughs> they were all horrible. <laughs> and, um, and these were the barista champions. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I hope I got that right. If I didn't, I apologize to Mark for, for getting quotation wrong. But, but nobody, very, if, the, if there were people that knew how to make espresso really taste good, at least in, you know, in the U.S., if there were any of those people, or people in the barista community like on Australia, they were keeping it secret, okay, for their own, for their own benefit, okay? Um, the Italians certainly knew how to make good-tasting espresso, but their espresso was a very, you know, a very different style. Okay, and it wasn't our style, um, or maybe we could have benefited by just emulating their style, but we were kind of doing our own thing. So, so what Alt Coffee was was a bunch of people who were kind of really psyched up to try and to try and make decent espresso, and we're not having a whole lot of success, and um, and we were trying to figure it out. Okay, and what was amazing about it is. You know, I, I guess for like the first time in history, you know, people in the U.S. and Australia and, and Europe um, and everywhere else could collaborate, you know, could collaborate pretty much instantaneously and talk about what they tried, what worked and what didn't work instead of being, you know, isolated in your own little community. So, um, um Old coffee later in later years degenerated and, and people just started coming on and posting all kinds of like hate racist stuff and and you know oh it became it became absolutely um an awful place and I, I I don't know Google, I don't know if Google, I think they shut it down completely. Um but um but alt coffee was unmoderated, so anybody could come in there and post. And um but but for quite a few years, it was really it was really a neat place, and um, um, and you know I met online you know people like Jim Shulman, you know who was a a brilliant guy and a, and a really good coffee taster, and just had all kinds of great insights. And Jim and I you know collaborated on some on some things, um, and. And, you know, a lot of other people that, you know, there was a fellow named from New Zealand um, named, if I got it right, Rene Van Sint Annaland. And Rene was the first guy that I knew of who said, you shouldn't be measuring the output of your espresso uh, volumetrically. Okay. So he said, forget about ounces or forget about measuring it milliliters. Okay because the amount of crema varied. He said, you should be measuring it in grams. And that was the first time I had heard that. And that, so I started doing that and I started talking that up. That wasn't my idea that I got that from Renee, but this was the kind of thing that some guy in a, in a cafe in New Zealand, um, he was doing. And then, and then you would, you would, you would learn about it on alt.coffee. Um, uh, there was a guy named David Ross, who, who's, um, I think he's a math professor or something, at, you know, out in Hawaii or something like that. And he said, if you have trouble with static on your grinder, take a drop of water 
and, and drop, put a drop of water on your coffee beans before you grind them, okay? And I tried that and, and the static vanished, okay? That's really like for single, for single dosing a coffee, coffee grind. That's a lot of harder to do if you have a hopper full of coffee. But, um, but that was like a miracle thing. And, and you know, that came up on, 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 um, on, on alt.coffee. Um, so I think I'm kind of an old guy, right? But, but what the way I look at it is, is that baristas today, young baristas today, this is, this is kind of, this is kind of an old guy talking. Um, <laughs> baristas today have no idea, have no idea, you know, how fast things have moved along. They have no idea how, how pitiful the, bar the barista knowledge was 20 years ago, okay? Mm -hmm. And they have no idea how, how many people have worked, you know, sometimes, sometimes uh, on their own in small groups or, or in collaborations online. Baristas nowadays have no idea how much, how much work has and discussion and experimentation has gone into where we're at today, okay? So if you become a barista today, you know, and you have some kind of decent training, there is a huge amount of knowledge that will be imparted to you that just did not exist, that just did not exist 20 years ago. Or if it did exist, it was kept proprietary. It was kept secret, you know. Um, I always assumed that people like Ely in, um, in Italy, they knew how to make espresso taste the way they wanted to make it taste but you know the knowledge the knowledge really was not out there okay and um so then but then but then um alt.coffee was text-based and it had a lot of limitations and it was unmoderated so mm -hmm. there'd be you know trolls and stuff like that that would be on there and so um mark prince started coffee geek that was his sort of spinoff where he could moderate it and he can control the content and it became his website. Um, Dan Keene came up with Home Barista um, and it was the same thing where, you know, he could control the content and moderate it. And um, especially Home Barista became a great place for me because a lot of the um, more um, scientific engineering kind of people um, migrated over to Home Barista. And, you know, we did, a whole lot of experimentation and and pooling of data and prodding each other on and discussions and stuff like that and you know that it was just really invaluable it was really invaluable um um you know so you know i i was mostly over there and and greg's case greg's case was over there you know doing his thing and jim shulman was over doing his thing and and all of us were on home barista okay um and you know, I think, and there was oh, there was another one called Coffeed, mm -hmm. C O F E E D, coffee.com, mm -hmm. um, and Coffeed was great because because um, it was kind of a lot of professional people, okay, that had that had a little bit more experience, and they kind of restricted access to it, um, and so it was a little more exclusive, and. Um, but there was a lot of, it was a different crowd there. So it was, it was great input. And um, Scott Rayo started 
what to me was the best, um, the best coffee thread in history. Okay, is this the Chemex thing? Yeah, he, he, he the, the title the title of his of his thread is why I I think it was why I hate the Chemex. Okay, mm-hmm. and and oh, that was a great thread, but he. But some people were up in arms, like like uh, Peter oh, Giuliano. Yep. You know, he said, "How can you hate the chem? I love the chemex." And and, <laughs> and it was it was great because because you couldn't because you Scott couldn't have picked a title that would get people more excited. Yeah. Than that. But there was there was some really good discussion that went on in among you know in among people getting uh, you know getting upset or just laughing or just whatever. Um, or countering Scott's arguments, um, there was um, there was a lot of good information that that um, that was that changed that changed hands. So um, coffee was really good, but then coffee sort of ended, as I remember, kind of abruptly. Um, um, so, but the, the whole online thing, the whole online thing was to me just absolutely remarkable and made our made our whole espresso journey, you know, a, a hundred times easier than it would have been otherwise. I probably would have given up if it wasn't for, um, you know, if, if it wasn't for all the collaborations that went on online back in those days. Yeah, I, I'm lucky enough to have gotten into coffee when, you know, scales were already sort of a thing. And, uh, you know, like the refractometer wasn't in popular use yet, but uh, like I was able to pull it out of the the box that was up on a like uh, you know uh, shelf somewhere hidden away at Intelligentsia, and so I pulled it out and was like, I'm going to use this. Um, so I mean, it was nice to have that head start that uh, you and the others on those forums provided. Um, you started at Intelli. Mm-hmm. That was my like, my second coffee job. Yeah. Okay, which one? Where where about in LA? Yeah, in the Silver Lake location. Okay. Yeah, I was at I was at Intelli. Um, Again, back in the aughts somewhere, um, and I um, and I actually asked Doug if if I could get a, a barista class, and I actually got, had a barista class, a one-on-one or a two-on-one barista cl- class with Matt Riddle and Amber Sather, and um, so and, and I was in Chicago, and um, this is with you teaching or uh... that was they they were you know I went there and I said I want I want to you know can I can can you give me a barista class? Because I want to be a better barista. Oh, I see. So Matt Riddle, he had won the US, he had won the USBC. And and Amber was just a great barista. So and they were at Intelli. So um, so I had like a, I spent like a few hours with them, you know, pulling espresso and talking about about, you know, how to make better espresso. And that was a great time. That was a really great time. Awesome. Uh, yeah. so- you, uh, I feel like you have a, a reputation for being the person that brought PIDs into play, um, and I, I'm curious. Like, there's definitely been an impact on the professional sector from the home barista community, and I assume, uh, you know, vice versa. Uh, can you speak to that at all in terms of like the impact from the home community to the professional world, and you know, vice versa? Hmm. Um, I think if an industry, well, I'm not a historian, but I think of an industry or some kind of human endeavor, okay, there's a certain point in its lifetime um, where, um, where the technology 
is pretty undeveloped, is relatively right. undeveloped, okay? And so there's a, there's a point in time in the development of that technology where amateurs can do very significant work, okay? And make a very significant contribution because, because this art or technology or whatever it is, is relatively undeveloped, okay? And so in my mind, that's what, um, that's where coffee was when, when I got into it. That's where coffee was at least in the um, outside of like, well, I don't know where, where I was at, you know, where, where I was at, I was in the US and, and, and coffee shops, new wave, third wave coffee shops or whatever were popping up and, and opening up. And at that point, the the understanding again what i was said before the understanding of how to make espresso and the science behind espresso and the art behind espresso was relatively undeveloped so so amateurs could make contributions just as well as the pros could and um and back then if you're if you were a professional barista you know you had a line of people out the door and you worked a long shift and you did the best you could to keep up with it and not end up with carpal tunnel syndrome and everything else. Mm -hmm. And you probably um, didn't have a whole lot of time to, um, to worry about the theory of extraction yields or something like that, okay? And, um, and you might not have any kind of technical training. So all that kind of stuff was, it was an art and the science part, you know, you may have had no knowledge about. Um, so, so, so if if there were amateurs um, that that could make a contribution to coffee knowledge, it was um, um, it was people that that had some kind of technical that had some kind of technical background because we didn't have the experience that the pros had. We weren't making hundreds of shots a day. We were making a half a day and getting so blasted on on caffeine tasting <laughs> that then we had a then we had to go to sleep or something like that. But but we we could spend the time pondering things, and we had the luxury of of doing experimentations. So um, so so that's where I think like the old coffee people and the home barista people made their contribution. It was because um, because the the science was so undeveloped. Okay, um, you know nowadays. You know, I think it's different because I see some of the I see some of the stuff that the more technical people and the engineering people and the scientific community is doing, and and this stuff is you know very ambitious and very complex, and sometimes you know all kinds of computational models and all, all kinds of stuff like that, and it's beyond the scope of anything that I, I ever did or could imagine doing, um, and so. Um, but but back then, but back then, you know, we were we were able to make a contribution, and I, and we we really appreciated the knowledge that the pros could give us. But I think at least some of the pros appreciated some of the some of the experiments and some of the insights that we that we brought to the game. So um, you know, it, it was a it was a really it was a cool time to be involved in something where you felt like you felt like you could really you could really learn stuff and you could really discover stuff 
that people hadn't thought about before or they hadn't discovered before. And then through the internet, you know, you could offer it to everybody and have them tear, tear you down <laughs> or else not tear you down or else, or else, you know, it became useful for them. So, uh, you know, I, I guess you uh, also own a tofu company and I, I was reading about uh, the PID story and, uh, you know, how you were using PIDs to make tofu. Uh, is, is your background like scientific at all or is it just your background as tofu? <laughs> well, I, I was always very interested in math and science, okay? Mm -hmm. And I, I went to college. I went to Michigan, University of Michigan, and I got a degree in, um, in conservation, in ecology, conservation ecology, okay. I guess you'd say, okay? But I never, I had, a, I had a really great time in college, but I never used that degree. Um, we used to, um, at, on the University of Michigan campus, on one corner of the main campus, you walk under this archway, which was the engineering building, okay? And, and we used to walk under that engineering building and just kind of shake our heads and go, man, those nerds there, what the hell do they know? And so um, that's how I kind of became an engineer, okay? <laughs> because sometimes it works. Like, supposedly, someone told me that Gandhi once said, you become what you hate mm. he said that and it's kind of like if you really hate something with a passion it really means you have some kind of attraction to it i mean it resonates it might resonate negatively in your psyche but you've got some kind of connection to that thing and it's not unusual um because you have that connection it's not unusual for you to become that thing mm -hmm. that you hate so much now, I, I don't know that I really hated engineers, but I did put them down for being so nerdy or something like that, or so narrowly focused. But that's who I am. I am kind of a narrowly focused nerd. So um, um, when, when I, I got into making tofu, which was also a kind of thing where there were some basic instructions put out um, back in the 70s that... Um, that were woefully incomplete. And if you kind of did everything according to the instructions, you'd get really, really frustrated. Everything would come out horribly. So, so back then a bunch of us started making tofu and we were the first, like some of the first like non-Asian people mm -hmm. to be making tofu. The Chinese and Japanese, they in Chinatowns around the US, they'd been making tofu for, I don't know, many, many years. But we were like hippies trying to learn how to make tofu because that's mm -hmm. what hippies were eating back then. And, um, and, and okay, so, so, so one, of the things was, one of the things was cooking, uh, was cooking properly, cooking the soy milk properly. And one of the industrial suppliers sold us a PID temperature controller, okay? And, um, and that was back in, I don't know, 1997 or something like that. And so I learned about that technology. And, um, and, then, when, and then later on, when I got into coffee um, in 1999 and, and, and 2000, um, David Schomer was talking about, about the importance of temperature control. And, and, um, and he was saying that he had done all these modifications to his to his La Marzocco linea, but he still had like a, a very a two degree variation in his boiler temperature. 
And um, well, I actually emailed him and I said, well, have you tried a PID temperature controller? Because I knew they would do a lot, lot better. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, it's an industrial temperature controller. And, um, and then I described to him what I was doing. And I had bought a Sylvia from Whole Latte Love, okay, which is right near my house. And, uh, you know, a, 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 a consumer espresso machine, a coffee machine dealer. And, um, and then I hooked up this PID temperature controller and, um, and the boiler temperature just, you know, became very, very steady. And I knew that if he was having a problem with the um, thermostat, mechanical thermostat in his linear, that the PID temperature controller would solve the problem. Now, he said later that, you know, I might have been the, I might have been among the first or one of the first. Greg Scase was doing the same thing at the same time um, to to talk about PID temperature controls in espresso. You know, David had, I think he had John Bick from Versalab that was working on the problem for him, and 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 he was putting PI and he was about to put a PID temperature controller in, but it was, but it was it just was the way you do temperature control in an industrial setting, okay. Um, and, and it costs a lot more, you know, nowadays they're kind of cheap, but back then a PID temperature controller was hundreds of dollars, you know, and the little thermostat that, that they were using on espresso machines might've been $5. So there was, there was a huge difference, um, in cost, but, um, but if you cared about temperature control, then that's what you would use PID and David obsessed about temperature control, you know, uh, to a degree that. I can't figure out, okay? Um, but, you know, David says he can taste, you know, a tenth of a degree or two tenths of a degree difference. And, and to me, it makes no sense. But but um, I certainly can't taste it. I don't know anybody that can. But but um, but if he can, more power to him. And he, so he was the one that inspired me to to try and see and get that kind of accuracy Otherwise, I don't think I would have bothered. I would have been interested in other aspects of espresso making. Um, but, but anyway, it's, but, but to answer your question in less than two hours, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was using PID temperature control, you know, in my, in my tofu factory. And it was pretty easy to take a spare controller and put it on the Ranchilio Silvia and, and um, get that boiler to kind of steady out in temperature. Cool. Awesome. Um, I, I'm also like, I'm a vegan that loves tofu and uh, I'm, I'm maybe as interested in your tofu experiences and your coffee experience. Um, and so I, I'm wondering what, uh, like, what, what are the best tofus that you've ever had? Well, my tofu, of course. <laughs> um, um, you do mainly like firm and extra firm, right? With soy boy? Yeah. Yeah, we're kind of, we're kind of, um, there are, there are artists and tofu people out there that um, strive to make the greatest tasting or the, um, or the most lovely textured tofu possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, whether they do or not, I, I don't know, because I haven't tasted that many. Okay. Um, but my company, Soy Boy, um, um, 
we're sort of more like an industrial supplier. We're sort of like if you have a restaurant, okay, um, um, or or you're a Cornell University or something like that, and you have to feed, you know, you have to make, you know, 75 vegan meals an evening or something like that, and you want a source of tofu, then that's that's our market, and so um, I, I'm not. I don't go around, you know, we're sort of like grinding it out, you know, mm -hmm. that, you know, 2000 pounds an hour. Okay. Wow. Whereas, whereas the art of the artisan tofu people are, are going at a much, much slower rate. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, so in coffee, my taste in coffee, maybe, you know, I talked about George Howe, you know, um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so my tastes in coffee are very much, the, you know, freakishly artisan, I guess you would say. Okay. But my taste in tofu is more like, um, is more like, you know, we're, we're an institutional supplier and, and nobody, there's no chef at, at Cornell University that's ever come back and said, you know, the subtle sweetness, you know, when you, when you change from the from the 2018 crop to the 2019 crop, I noticed that the you know that the traces mm -hmm. of grassiness were no longer present, and no one's ever said that. So, um, so it's it's an interesting question that you ask. What's the best tofu we ever had? But but um, um, I'm not I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what the answer is. Okay. Okay. I think I eat, tofu. I, eat, I eat tofu every day and I season it all kinds of different ways. And, and the tofu that we make is firm, extra firm, holds together really well. It's got a lot of protein packed in there. It slices well, fries up well, all that kind of stuff. That's what our selling, that's, that's why people like our tofu and also our tempeh. We make a lot of tempeh too. Um, um, but what, but that's the only way I can answer your question. Yeah. Uh, I got like an artisanal tofu a few years ago and I was really excited about it and I ended up just botching the cooking. So it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, I, I think I have similar tastes where it's a little bit more utilitarian. Like I, I buy reasonably good tofu and uh, try to cook it without fucking it up. Uh, but I'm also curious. Uh, so Charles Babinski, who uh, you know is another coffee guy who's, really into making tofu at home. We both went through phases of like making tofu at home. And I'm wondering, do you think that there's any reason for somebody to make tofu at home uh, other than just like it being a hobby, like uh, to compare it to manual brewing, I guess, like uh, is there any benefit to be had from doing it yourself uh, on a small scale? You like the feeling of burning your hands? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, um... You know, maybe in the maybe in the time of COVID, uh, maybe there's a reason to make your tofu at home because it gives you something to do. You know, if you're if you're stuck at home, and you're kind of bored out of your mind. Mm -hmm. um, but um, when we started out, you know, we essentially made tofu on a home scale. You know, a lot to try and figure out how to make it work. And what was um, what struck me early on was, my God, the cleanup cleaning up after this thing is is awful yeah i mean you have all these different cloths and 
and implements and presses and everything that you got to clean. And and when you boil the the soy the boil the soy slurry, you know, in the first step, um, it would boil over. It would boil over all over your stove, and then it would burn onto your stove if you didn't pay attention to it for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was kind of an awful mess. And so I would answer no. <laughs> I don't see, you know, unless you're just looking for something to do. I mean, you can make homemade bread um, and you can make fantastic homemade bread and it's not that much of a hassle, you know. Um, I suppose you can do, you know, pickles and, ve- you know, canned vegetables or, you know, stuff like that and it's really not that it's really not that big a deal and the results can be superior to what you can buy um but I, i'm very prejudiced because i'm a commercial tofu maker but right. no I, I don't see i don't I, I don't i just don't get it i don't get it it's so tofu is so cheap at retail um for what you're getting that um i think it's one thing you should um you know, you should buy <laughs> prejudiced opinions. <laughs> I think that's uh, sensible. And I mean, yeah, Charles loves doing it, I think, because he loves like curing meat and this and that. But uh, like he likes the hobby of it. But uh, in my mind, I'm just like, yeah, the tofu press can sit in the pantry somewhere untouched for years. Um, so uh, to get back to coffee a little bit. Uh, so, you know, we, you were getting to like the alt coffee and uh, coffee and all these different sort of communities. Um, And I feel like there was a lot of innovation during that period. And I'm curious if you're aware of any sort of other uh, like little pockets of innovating communities in coffee currently. Currently? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, besides Scott Rayo. You know, well, Matt, is it Matt Perger? Perger? I, I tried to verify that the other day, and then I only confused myself more. Um, yeah, it, uh, yes. <laughs> that, yeah, that guy. Um, you know, from what I from what I gather, um, you know, he's he's done some really good work and is continuing to do it, um, and um, and is trying to do the you know education, coffee education, you know, in a very organized way. So so that seems. Um, you know that seems really significant. Um, um, like I said, I'm not that up on you know the latest in coffee technique, technology, and stuff like that. Um, I'm sort of like you know I'm I'm still like 15 years ago. You know that's that's kind of that's kind of I I remember going to some um, U.S. barista championship. I think it was in Seattle, and and there was a there was a coffee guy named Billy Wilson, okay, and um, and Billy was the first one I remember that made a good um, single origin espresso coffee, okay, and he kind of blew our mind because back then this is another one of those things where where you know coffee has come such a long way. The cat just. The cat just figured out how to open the screen door and slip outside. Oh, well, <laughs> I hope he comes back later. <laughs> Good job. His name is Macaroni, and he just pulled the screen door open, and he squeezed through the little opening. Um, 
Uh, Billy Wilson was the first one I remember at that at, that he that he was making single origin espresso because before then coffee was was all these blends you know to make espresso coffee you're supposed to take three parts Brazil and two parts Sumatra and one part Ethiopian or something like that and blend them together and that's what that's what you're supposed to do to make an espresso an espresso blend. And Billy came to that USBC, and he was and he and for his um, presentation, he was doing a single origin espresso. And we were like, "Whoa, <laughs> whoa! <laughs> how could he? How could you even dream of doing that?" And well, I didn't taste it, but I but I but I think it was pretty damn good. Nowadays, does anybody raise an eyebrow that you're doing a single origin espresso? No, that's pretty much all that I ever drink um, or all that I ever make. Um, you know, back then it was, it was like an extraordinary feat of, it was like somebody said, boy, that Billy, he's got balls to pull that one off. And, and um, not sure how I got off on that tangent. <laughs> or just, uh, you know, pockets of people innovating and uh, who's innovating now. Um, uh, another question that I had for you, though, uh, that comes from Kyle Glanville is uh, if you can talk about the Schechter. By the, way, by the way, you know, I did meet Kyle at a at a coffee show, you know, years ago. So shout out to Kyle. He's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, um, he, he, you know, is one of the few people in uh, the coffee world that I think is up on, you know, uh, you know, heroes and legends of the, the world from your uh, day. Uh, he was asking about uh, the machine that you uh, collaborated with David Schumer on, uh, I think, for the 2006 SCAA. And I think it's the Schecter, Schectomatic, right? Okay. Yeah, Schectomatic was a, was a goofy name. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think what Kyle was talking about, I'm pretty sure, yeah, what Kyle was talking about was... Um, um, after we after we worked on the um, temperature control thing, okay, or at least the temperature stability thing, making sure that that your shot was pulling at the same temperature time after time after time, and it seemed like after a few years of both PID temp boiler control and also various kinds of um, visical plumbing, you know, modifications and stuff like that you could build a machine that would deliver a uniform shot temperature, whether it was sitting idle for 15 minutes or whether you pulled several shots in a row, okay? That was an accomplishment. Then people started talking about pressure profiling, okay? So, um, so pressure profiling um, was another sort of unexplored area, at least unexplored by, by the third wave tofu makers. Um, I think <laughs> lever machines do pressure profiling because you know lever machine lever machines are set up so that the extraction pressure does decline um, through the course of the extraction. And they're also they they're also do a a a, a natural pre-infusion too if you use them that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I had an all dot coffee friend named Sean Lennon named Sean Lennon, but not the, not John Lennon's son, but same <laughs> name. And, uh, and um, 
And Sean is an engineer, like he builds robots and he's really brilliant engineer. And, um, and I was talking to him about various strategies to do pressure control. And he suggested a certain kind of pump that could do it. And that made a lot of sense to me. So, um, so I built this in my basement, I built this pump that um, could pump at espresso pressures, you know, like nine bar and, 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 but also could be profiled. So you could, you could program in a profile and you could start out at five bar and then go up to nine bar and then you could, and then you could drop it down, gradually drop it down through the course of the shot. And um, um, that was, and so, and so I, I talked to uh, Kevin and Tomas from Gimme Coffee, okay, before that show and said, you know, hey, what if we hooked up, uh, what if we hooked up uh, this pump to one of the groups on your, I think it was a La Marzocca Linea that you're bringing to the show. And they said, yeah, let's go for it. And so coming to that show, um, we had a, um, an espresso machine that would do pressure, pro programmable pressure profiling. And um, there might've been some commercial machines out there that did that, but I don't know what they were. It was pretty unusual. It was pretty exotic technology. Mm -hmm. And, and it was, it was pretty nifty. Oh, the other thing about it is it was almost completely silent because it ran on air pressure. Hmm. And I had a, uh, an air compressor that was under the counter that was extremely quiet. It was made for dental, like dental offices and stuff like that, where they blast your, your cavities out with, um, with compressed air. So it made almost no noise. So the, here was this espresso machine at the show that pulled these silent shots. And it was pretty cool and, and with pressure profiling. And so I remember Kyle, I, I, Kyle was at that show and he was kind of impressed that here was something that, again, it was something that like amateurs were doing that, and it was a technology that wasn't available commercially. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, very soon after that, um, you know, that kind of technology was available, pressure profiling, you know, was, was available um, commercially. So that, that was, that was a really fun time. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I got to work on a, a Strata at uh, Silver Lake Intelligentsia, and that was fun. But like, inevitably, the paddle would break, and like, you know, if you wanted to do the pressure profiling, it was like you'd be taking an order and like adjusting this uh, paddle, uh, and inevitably, you know, then the next barista comes on, and you're like, uh, you're screwed. <laughs> but uh, I, I sort of, you know, isn't that they had that EP, like the Strata EP, which you, you could actually program, but I only got to mess with that for like a day uh, before they, you know, hid it away. But uh, man, yeah, I, I'm too covet a, a decent. So hopefully uh, we'll both be decent espresso makers soon. And uh, incidentally, I'm, I'm interviewing uh, John Buckman from Decent later this week. So, uh, you know, that'll be interesting. Cool. I, I I've never met him. I've never had a conversation with him, but I, you know, I read his stuff and, and um, he just sounds like a, a really brilliant guy and, and is doing great things. So I'm looking forward to, to um, seeing that podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely yeah. send it your way. Um, yeah. Let's see here. What else do I have on my agenda? Um, I, 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 to me, to me the, the one thing that, 
the one thing that um, the mo the most significant thing I've done in coffee, mm -hmm. okay, um, is um, um, with espresso brewing. Mm -hmm. Okay, back in those dark early days, um, they um, and even in Illy's book, they measure their dose out in grams. Okay, their coffee dose out in grams. Usually it was seven grams for an Italian espresso. And then they measured the output, the beverage output in milliliters, okay? And as I said, that fellow Rene from New Zealand, he, um, he turned me on to the idea of measuring the espresso, the beverage output in grams, okay? And, um, but back then there was this kind of crazy thing going on where people were going like, um, well, what kind of espresso shots do you pull? Oh, I pull, I pull double lungos. And someone else would say, oh, I pull only triple ristrettos and all this kind of stuff. And I was kind of like, well, what is a triple ristretto? How many grams do you use for a triple espresso? espresso ristretto? Oh, well, I use 24 grams. Oh, I use 20 grams. Um, the Italians, when they do a ristretto, they use seven grams. And it's kind of like, well, what's a ristretto? And some people did lungos, you know, um, you know, long shots. Oh, a long shot is, is, I don't know, 60 milliliters or something like that. Well, how, how many grams of coffee do you use? And so it was kind of like a real poor, um, it, the communication about what you were doing, what's a ristretto and what's a lungo and what's a normale, if there's such a thing, or just what they call in the middle was just an espresso. Um, you know, what, what are people talking about? And it seemed like everybody could tell you what kind of shot they were pulling, but you had no idea what they were doing, okay? And so it occurred to me that it should be a ratio, okay? It should be the ratio of your output in, your, your output in grams compared to your coffee dose in grams. And, and I looked in Ely to try and see, you know, them using that sort of ratio thing. And it wasn't there. Um, I didn't, and nobody was talking about it. And I actually called up Don Holly, who was on the uh, Specialty Coffee Association um, Technical Standards Board, and I said, "Well, doesn't anybody talk about the ratios of you know, you know, of wet to dry when they're making espresso?" And he said, "No, I never heard that. I never heard that." So, so then I started talking about that on on Home Barista about and and. And to me, that's to me that finally cut through all this confusion about about what we were doing because that's a key, that's just a, a key part. You know that, John. It's a really key part of mm -hmm. making espresso shot. You know, is how much liquid you're going to pull out of how big a dose. Um, and and that on before that, it seemed like that was buried in the Italian, in the Italian mythology. Mm -hmm. You know. And there were uh, there were these guys in Italy who could pull fantastic shots, but if you wanted to know how they did it, you were screwed because you'd never be able to find out. Either they didn't want to tell you, or they they couldn't really tell you. Um, and so um, it's just another one of those things which I think baristas nowadays have access to that kind of um, way of thinking, um, or that you know that knowledge that you know, that, that didn't exist, you know, you know, 
15 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely remember you doing that post and I feel like that's uh, like foundational enough knowledge for me that I'm just like, yes, of course, like this is how you talk about it. Uh, but I guess like then the only thing you can do beyond that is talk about the, the actual like, you know, strength percentages and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, cause I guess like 18 to 36 is different at nine TDS than it is at you know 12 TDS. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, that's, a, I forgot about that post that is, uh, and, you oh, consider- and once you got, once you had your, your brewing ratio, um, and you had a TDS measurement, which you would get with, you know, one of Vince's refractometers, um, then you could, then you could calculate the extraction yield. And, um, and, and then you could start to manipulate the flavor of your espresso. And until Vince started, I think this knowledge was out there, but, but I didn't have this knowledge. Once you, once you started talking about extraction yields, um, and how to and how to change them, um, then you could really start controlling or at least influencing the flavor of your espresso. Okay, mm-hmm. um, that was a huge uh, bit of knowledge that I got from Vince. Um, before that, my espresso tastes bitter. You know what? You know how come it tastes bitter? How come it tastes sour? How come it tastes hollow or wh- whatever? And um, and I wasn't that talented a barista to figure that all out on my own. I just wasn't. Um, Jim Shulman was more talented than me and figured out, I think figured out a lot of it, but um, not very many people, not very many people did. And, um, and if you went online and tried, and tried to find somebody and ask the question, it was like, you got a lot of answers that, were not helpful or a lot of people saying i just don't know so um um yeah things things have really think i don't know things that you know things have changed things have gotten a lot a lot easier and i think the espresso has gotten a whole lot better Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm curious uh before the refractometer became fairly common were you ever the type of person that went as far as to uh like the whole like tedious dehydration of your uh, spent grounds type thing or were you lucky enough to not have ever done that i think jim and i jim shulman and i we were we were doing experiments like that and we were posting them on home barista and i think vince fideli from vst i think he um he read some of those posts and that's how he contacted us about about would we be interested in in uh, you know beta testing uh, his refractometer? So so I did very limited experiments. And it was pretty. It was a real pain in the ass, and and it kind of um, it kind of stunk up your kitchen because when you were dehydrating the you know the coffee, you know it's, the smells were pretty strong and stuff like that. So when the refractometer really proved out and was working well, um, you know it 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 made things you know a hundred times easier and 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 more accurate um but you know there's been a lot of pushback on the refractometry and i understand it because you can't just say well my target is you know 19 and a half percent extraction yield and and my my espresso is going to taste good you know it just doesn't work that way um it's a lot more complicated than that but but the extraction yield is a tremendous tool you know uh in you know getting you 
going, at least getting you in the right direction to where you want to go or mm-hmm. figuring out if I change this or if I change that, you know, what effect that will that have on my espresso. Yeah, I, I remember uh, talking to Scott Rayo about the the whole dehydrating the spent grounds thing, and he basically told me, this is a good way to do this if you don't want to buy a refractometer, but you will not have a girlfriend afterwards. So, uh, you know, he doesn't right. suggest it. Um, yep, yep. Well, uh, the last thing I'll ask about is uh, your Godshot video. And I'm just curious, was that a Godshot? <laughs> it was a great video. I, 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 you remind me of it. I would forgotten about that one. Um, no, it wasn't. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, uh, years and years ago, I saw on eBay a guy that was um, listed, you know, like four dozen Italian espresso cups, all from different Italian cafes. So I bought, I bought it on eBay mm-hmm. and came. I don't know. There was one of them that was cracked, you know, that was that I didn't want to use. So then I had the idea for that, for that fake video, where, um, where. Yeah, where I made a, sh- I tasted a shot, and then, and then I had read about the 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 God shot. I think that was, I think that was David Schomer's thing, wasn't it? The God shot. I know yeah, Mark Prince. Right. Mark Prince taught. I think the original idea came from David Schomer. I think, but anyway, that a God shot was just so incredible that you were so astonished at at tasting at the first taste, you would <laughs> you would lose control and, and drop the cup and it would smash on the floor <laughs> and when i did that little video it it kind of the, the cup was already cracked so when it hit the tile floor it broke nicely into several pieces and the espresso dribbled onto the floor so yeah it was that, <laughs> i think that worked out pretty well no it wasn't a good shot uh, i i watched that video this morning and i was like oh yeah i remember this and uh I, I deduce that it must have been like you sacrificing an already sort of messed up cup. So I'm, I'm glad I was right. It um, only took it only took one take, and um, um, yeah, it, it just took one take. But the I don't even I have no idea what it I have no idea what it tasted like. <laughs> and the I, tile floor was not damaged. Only the cup was damaged. Fortunately, excellent. Good. I remember those days of people talking about God shots and I guess you know, those are the, yeah. those were the days. People would say, was, was that a God shot? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It was probably, it probably wasn't God shot because it probably wasn't a very good shot, but, but um, yeah, God shots were big back then. Mm-hmm. The talk of God shots were big back then. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I think that's all I have to ask you. Um, anything else you want to say before we sign off? Um, no, I just think, um, I, I just think that the, the whole coffee odyssey, um, was just been a great deal of fun for me and satisfaction and, and meeting, you know, a whole lot of, um, really people that, that I still correspond with and I'm still happy to be friends with. And, um, I appreciate your taking the time to do this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I very much appreciate all the you know posts that you did on all the forums, and uh, they're very influential for me when I was uh, still just somebody carrying around a, a digital scale in my backpack from class to class in college, and uh, you know being that level of nerd. So um, you know, for all the nerds in the coffee, I I, I thank you. <laughs> okay, well, 
from one from one nerd to another, you're most welcome. Okay, John. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Andy. It was good. Okay. All right. Take care. All right. Adios. Thank、you